Hi, this is Steve Nerlick from Cheap Astronomy. Why, 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 why Cheap Astronomy? Yeah, why? And this is Dear Cheap Astronomy, Episode 77. It's a weird place, but we're getting to know it. So, 77 episodes in, we'd like to think the good folk here at Cheap Astronomy have managed to communicate that the universe as we know it is kind of weird. For example, anything you observe from a distance happened in the past. While that might seem like a statement of the bleeding obvious, it does also demonstrate something fundamental about what the fabric of our universe is made of. Dear Cheap Astronomy, what is time made of? So firstly, time is not something you can deal with in isolation. It's just one aspect of space-time, where the other aspect is space. The reason the universe has an ultimate speed limit is that you can never cross any distance of space without time also passing. By using more energy and better technologies, you can certainly reduce the duration of travel between points A and B, but that duration will never reach zero. Similarly, when we look far out into the universe, or even when we look across the room, we are looking into the past. And the further away something is, the further back in time it is. Time and space are so intrinsically connected that we just call the whole thing space-time. So, what is space-time made of? Tricky. It's intangible to any of our senses or any measuring devices we have. Of course, we can measure the distance between objects, remembering that distant objects are distant in both space and in time, but all we're doing there is measuring the expanse without saying anything about what the expanse is made of. There are various grounds for arguing that space-time does not really exist. Although, if you're stuck in a queue to pass customs, and your international flight departs in 15 minutes, you may not be partial to this line of thinking. But, consider the humble photon. It moves from point A to point B with no proper duration of time. That is, if it had some kind of consciousness, or some kind of measuring device, it could neither experience nor measure the passage of time. And so, if no time passed between it moving from point A to point B, then it's essentially at point A and point B at the same time. Indeed, if you extended its line of travel out to point C, it would also be at point C at the same time. So, just as a photon would have no perception of time, it would have no perception of distance either. But of course, this is just an issue of frames of reference. For a photon, it's absolutely true that there is no time and space. But that's because a photon moves at the speed that defines the interconnectedness of space and time. In our universe, space-time is measured as the ratio of 300,000 kilometers of distance to one second of time. So if you can cross 300,000 kilometers of distance in one second, then there's no duration and there's no gap. But if it takes you two seconds to cross 300,000 kilometers, then you start to notice that there is a gap and that it takes a bit of time to cross that gap. 
And if you're a slightly overweight sublight speed entity facing a 16-hour flight from Sydney to Los Angeles, that's 50,400 seconds to cross just 12,000 kilometres, and if you're stuck in a queue to pass customs and the flight departs in 15 minutes, then you'll have no problem acknowledging that space-time is very real. But what is it made of? Or why don't we just ask, what is it? Well, we do think there was no space-time before the Big Bang, and immediately after there was, and there's a heck of a lot more of it now. So it could be argued that an observer, external to the universe, might have seen an energetic quantum fluctuation burst into momentary existence, that momentary bubble of energy quickly expanding so as to cool back down to the background zero-point energy, possessed by the background tapestry of whatever fundamental reality allows the occasional and temporary outbursts of universes. As we like to say here at Cheap Astronomy, this is just an example of avoiding the origin problem. If your only response to the question of how the universe came to be is to say that, well, actually, there's a multiverse in which universes appear and disappear all the time well, then you're not really adding much in the way of useful information. The question is how this universe came to be, because my b- international flight is leaving in b- 15 minutes, and it's a b-ing long way to b- Los Angeles. So I don't give a flying b- about anyone else's universe. I want to know about this one. A good number of the world's philosophical conundrums can be readily put aside under such circumstances. IQ, therefore I am. Indeed, if I am, then the universe must be. Because why the b- else would I be queuing? I hate b-ing queuing. Postscript. I should acknowledge our North American listeners, who are the large majority of our listeners, might be thinking, what the b- is a queue? Although in the globalized 21st century, you probably already know a queue is a line. But come on. I line, therefore I am? That's terrible. This is the middle bit. And so it turns out that waiting is a fundamental aspect of existence. Indeed, the 14 billion year history of the universe can be mostly described as long periods of sameness interspersed by brief periods of intense activity. This is nicely exemplified in the lifetime of a massive star of eight or more solar masses, which arises from the slow clumping together of a giant dust cloud, and once nuclear fusion commences in its core, it becomes a ticking time bomb on a path towards a core collapse supernova. But even though it is inevitable, us short-lived ephemeral beings would like to know exactly how long we have to wait before it blows. Dear Cheap Astronomy, is Betelgeuse about to blow? Firstly, we know it's not really pronounced Betelgeuse, and we don't care. Douglas Adams said Betelgeuse, and that's good enough for us. Anyhow, recently several media outlets got all het up about a prolonged dimming in Betelgeuse's radiance. Of course, it is a variable star, and an irregularly variable star at that, So it is meant to brighten and dim on an unpredictable basis, 
But this did seem like an unusually long dimming phase, and so some folks started speculating that it might be about to blow. Like supernova blow. We do have a reasonably good understanding of the approximate lifetimes of different stars, partly through observation and partly through physics and math, working from the star's mass and its spectral class, which pretty much means its colour. So, Betelgeuse's lifespan should be about 100 million years, and we know its actual age is about 100 million years. So yes, it is about to blow, but there's enough variance in our calculations that it could go supernova tomorrow or 100,000 years from tomorrow. And is a prolonged dimming a clear sign of a pending supernova? Well, we don't actually know, having had no prior close-up observations of a star just before it went supernova. However, the physics behind a build-up to supernova detonation involve a steadily increasing output of energy from the fusion shells around the star's core until they finally give out, leading to a sudden loss of outward radiation pressure so that the outer parts of the star collapse inwards very, very fast, and then kablooey. But does that all mean that the star should dim just before it blows? Well, probably not. Remember, it takes about a million years for a photon to work its way out from our sun's core to its surface. And here we're talking about Betelgeuse, which is 10 to 20 solar masses. Of course, being near the end of its life, it has ballooned out to become a red giant, and its current diameter is thought to be larger than the diameter of our asteroid belt. So that means its current average density is lower now than during its main sequence youth, but the general rule should still apply. That is, if something happens at a star's core, it's going to take a very long time for that something to be communicated out to the star's surface. Well, unless of course it is the actual core collapse, in which case the entire star will be completely annihilated within a matter of minutes. But that's not what we're talking about here. The suggestion here is that something has happened deep within the star that is heralding its pending destruction and that something has been communicated to the surface well ahead of the actual event. And how far well ahead? If we use the sun as a benchmark, then if something happened at the core of Betelgeuse to cause a dimming from its surface, then that something must have happened about a million years ago. It is possible there could be some kind of precursor event that happens almost a million years before a supernova explosion, but that doesn't seem especially likely. And there's nothing in our current understanding of supernova evolution that suggests that the start of a minus 100 million years countdown to detonation should subsequently result in the star becoming dimmer. We may just have to accept that an irregularly variable star we've been monitoring with any accuracy for around a century has suddenly dimmed down a little more than what we're used to. This is, after all, what irregularly variable stars do. They vary irregularly. The underlying physics behind Betelgeuse's dimmings and brightenings is not well understood. It could be that the whole star's radiative output is actually pulsating, but alternatively, it could just be some quirk of the star's geometry, which is not especially spherical, or be some kind of magnetic field shift, 
Or it could just be something to do with its stellar wind, which at this late stage in its lifetime would be sloughing off some pretty huge coronal mass ejections that from a distance could act like fog, making the star seem to dim even though it really isn't. So, more than likely, when the kablooey moment comes, we'll all be totally surprised by it, but hopefully by then we'll be monitoring Betelgeuse with such constancy and accuracy that we will pick up all the precursor signs of its imminent destruction, and so we'll know what to look for when another big star's about to blow. This is the end bit. So, there you go. Our science is good enough to nail down the lifespan of a massive star to plus or minus 100,000 years. But our science is not yet good enough to nail down the exact timing of the end-of-life supernova event. This is disappointing for those of us who don't like to wait. But hopefully, in the future, and with science, humanity will get better at predicting the timing so people won't be left wondering when the next one will go off. But that's it for another episode of Dear Cheap Astronomy. If you want to know how long you have to wait for things to happen, why not write to cheapastro at gmail.com and we'll bring you up to speed on what we do and what we don't know. Although, for the most part, we don't know what we don't know. Thanks for listening. Steve Nellick, Cheap Astronomy.